Thanks be to God. Well, first of all, happy Mother's Day. I want a special Mother's Day greeting to my own mother, who's here this morning. Happy Mother's Day to you. Um, you know, I know this is not the most Mother's of Day passages that we could you know, pick up your cross and die, kind of thing like that. I want you to know, though, I want you to know, I want you to know, uh, I think second or third year of our church, we're doing a series on Genesis, and the passage where Cain murders his brother fell on Mother's Day. And I remember I got home and Kirsten looked at me. She's like, seriously? Like, you allowed that? Well, mom watching her children fight and kill each other uh, for Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. You kind of thing like that to Eve. Uh, so it's better. It's better. Now, if you were here last week, you heard me say that this is the first of two weeks of a, what we call a hinge in Mark's gospel. So we've been doing this series. For those of you visiting, we've been doing a series in September of last year. We'll continue on for another seven or eight months, probably. Uh, in Mark's gospel. And so the first eight chapters were about answering the question, who is Jesus? And we got to Peter's famous confession last week, which was, you're the Christ. Now we get to the second of the two hinges. And this is really beginning to to ask a new question that we're going to keep asking over and over and over again through the next eight chapters. And that is, what kind of king, what kind of Christ are you? And so today, we're starting in with some hard teaching. It's new teaching, but it's hard teaching. You probably felt it in the, as the text was being read to you this morning. It's hard. First time ever to hear Jesus say this in his gospel journey. But it's life-giving, paradoxically, as we're going to see today. This, this teaching that, that would move us towards death is also the place of life. And I think that's really, uh, really the, the, the connecting point for us this morning in the text. It's to move from simply saying, I believe, Jesus, that you're more than a prophet. I believe that you're more than a rabbi. To actually the practice of saying, now my life looks like pick up the cross and follow me. That's where the rubber meets the road, I think. This morning, here's what we're going to do. I want to look at why we so easily lay down the confession. Why is that we so easily remove ourselves from the confession? Number two, what do we gain when we hold on to the confession and practice it? Pick up your cross and follow me. Then finally, how does it happen? Where do we find the strength? Where do we find the courage to do so? And as you might suspect, it's in the person of Jesus. Let's begin here with the first thing. And why is that we so easily and readily let go of the confession? So if you were here last week, you heard us talk about the blind man. Remember the blind man who, who receives partial sight and then after walking around looking like, oh, it's, it's people moving around like trees, walking, that sort of thing like that. Then there's full sight given by Jesus and that really remarkable and strange healing. And then followed that by, by disciples being asked by Jesus, well, who do people say that I am? Remember, partial sight. Well, people say you're a rabbi, that you're a teacher, a prophet, a great healer, that's something like that. But who do you say that I am? Well, this is that verse, verse 29. It says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Now, Peter, at this point, right, he was probably feeling that little schoolboy in the classroom. He gets the question right for the first time. Right? You remember those days? You're like, you're like, yes, nailed it, right? Followed by the next question, which was uh, a little bit more difficult. And that's really what happens next year. Because this is sort of like Jesus is saying, look, I had to teach you your numbers first. I had to teach you basic math in order to get to algebra. And now we're, now we're going to do algebra. It's a little bit more complex. It's a little bit harder here. And so you get to verse 31 that opens up our passage. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days 
rise again. After the first confession, this. It's like the mic drop. And you can imagine what, for the disciples, here's, let me tell you, in fact, what's happening here. Because we know this because of the next eight chapters. Because this happens routinely. It happens here, and it's going to happen over and over and over again. The disciples are thinking, did we just back the wrong horse? Like, remember, Peter has just confessed Jesus, but he thinks it's a certain kind of Messiah. Who will do what? Who will remove the jackboot of the Roman army off their necks? Right? And so you, you, you come to this, this, this statement here by Jesus, this first teaching, as it were, on the other side of this confession, and there's confusion in the ranks. It was, uh, was it Charlie Brown who, who said, uh, winning isn't everything, but losing isn't anything. And right now, it looks like they've just backed a loser because the cross, I mean, this is the first time that we've ever seen Jesus use the word cross regarding himself. And what is he saying? We see this, we wear it as a symbol of jewelry around our neck. It's a sign of our faith. But what was it for the Jewish people? It was a sign of failure. It was a sign of shame and a humiliation. When Jesus says, I'm going to the cross, it wasn't like, yes, of course, the Messiah. It was another failed, failed Messiah. This has happened before. See, what's inevitable after the confession is this. Revolution, according to Peter. But after, after what Jesus has said, it's like, not so sure. Revolution or execution. Revolution or execution. Right now, Peter's saying, it's looking more like execution. It's not just the wrong Messiah. It's the wrong life. Eugene Peterson, commenting on this passage, said this. First half of the gospel is Jesus showing people how to live. He's healing everybody. Then right in the middle, he shifts. He starts showing people how to die. Now that you've got a life, I'm going to show you how to give it up. That's the whole spiritual life. It's learning how to die. And Peter will not have it. Which leads us now to some of the most iconic verses in the life of Peter. Verses 32 and 33. Let's read it together. And he said to them, Plainly, meaning like, this is not a parable. I'm not being cryptic. The things I'm telling about what happened here, I'm being plain. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Oh my gosh, there's so much here to talk about, right? Now, first of all, let, let me just say this. Don't put this on your resume. Like, I rebuked my rabbi. Not the smartest thing to do. Not the sharpest tool in the tool shed. I mean, I, had a, I have a coach where at the gym where I work out at, the CrossFit gym. And he is a Brazilian jiu-jitsu master. So what this means is he's really good. How good is he? This week, he became number one in the world in his age bracket. Number one. In four and a half years of fighting, no one has ever taken a single point off him. It's been four and a half years since they've even gotten a point off of him. That's how good he is. Peter taking on Jesus would be like me going to Nick and saying, I think I've got you today, right? It ain't going to happen, right? It ain't going to happen. Peter, what are you thinking right here? But let's cut Peter some slack because we need some slack as well. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Peter grew up being bounced on 
on the knee of his mother. Happy Mother's Day to Peter's mom, right? And all this. And so what was he hearing from his mom? What was he hearing from his parents? What was he hearing from his culture? The Messiah will come and he will come on a military steed of war and he will reign. Now, this is not completely untrue. Why do we know that? Let me read to you a passage from another prophet, Daniel. Chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now remember, Jesus says in verse 31, the Son of Man will suffer. But here it says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. This is where that statement comes from. And he came to the Ancient of Days, this is Yahweh, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Right? Here's the problem though. That wasn't all of what the Scripture said. We read it earlier in, this, in, the, in the service here. The Old Testament reading from Isaiah 53. Let me just read to you just a couple of verses just to remind ourselves what did another prophet say about the Messiah as well. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. If Peter had paid attention in Sunday school class, if Peter had been able to connect the dots, the full picture would have emerged of who the Messiah is. But again, let's, let's cut him some slack. Let's cut ourselves some slack here. Because the reality is we do this all day long. What we do is we shape a Messiah into the image that we like the most. Just as it was for Peter, as a, by the way, a representative of all the disciples. It wasn't just Peter who believed this. It was all the disciples. We know that from later on as well. What they knew was they had a certain image of what God's what the Messiah would be, what their Savior would be. And it turned out He was made in their image, not the other way around. Right? Why is that so important here? Here's how you know that you have a wrong image of Jesus that you're following. Because He looks just like you, He loves everything that you love, and He never confronts you. He never confronts you. He votes for all the same politicians you vote for. All of your political enemies are his enemies. Yeah, his, your ideology is his ideology, right? And let me tell you, even looking beyond that, here's the reality. The reality is, if I'm honest to, to, before you, and you would hope that your pastor, so let me be honest. More days than not, I want Jesus to baptize my lifestyle. That's the truth of it. I'm pretty comfortable. Here in May of 23 in the city of Atlanta. And, and if Jesus is who he says he is, then our, my life is forfeit. Your life is forfeit if you're a follower of Christ. And yet the reality is we don't fully expect him to ask everything of us, do we? Time, talent, and treasure. And so what ends up happening is we end up shaping a Jesus that we like. Right? He's for the things that we're for and he's against the things that we're against. So what do you do? Well, let me just suggest two things. Number one, recognize your blindness. The reality is, you know, I know you work with a deference construct with me up front here as the pastor. 
the reality is in, in 15, or excuse me, 18 years of preaching, along the way, I've said things that are not true. The problem is I just don't know which things necessarily, right? There's probably 10%. I just don't know which 10% it is, right? And so, like, let's just, let's just humble ourselves. Let's recognize the fact that probably the image of Jesus that we have is probably off. It's probably off. By the way, speaking of humility, you know where Mark got his gospel from? Eyewitness testimony from who? Peter. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being sitting in a room, Mark's sitting in a room with Peter, and Peter's like, oh, I need to tell you about this thing that happened. You weren't there. <laughs> Clearly I was. You know, And then a few other things happened along the way. But can you imagine? Talk about humility. Peter could see his blindness, can we? And the second thing is, man, when you, when you can acknowledge that, hold fast to the Scriptures. Hold fast. Read the Gospels daily. We have a thing that we used to do here. A lot of people still do Moravian readings where you get to be in the Gospels every day. Man, hold fast to the Word of God. If you really want to know, what does it mean to see clearly in this world today in a very confused culture? How do you see clearly? Hold fast to the Word of God. Right there. With humility, of course. Here. So, all of what I'm saying here in terms of why do we let go is this. Here's a word. Jesus feels foreign to us. But let me show you else something about Jesus. He feels fearful to us. Not just foreign, but also fearful. Look at verses 34 through 37. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake... And the Gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? There are two things here I want you to see about fear. I think I just need to name these things. In fact, in some ways, I think it's an elephant in the room for us in the modern world. But let me name them. Number one, fear of losing our reputation. Fear of losing our reputation. You know, uh, in fact, let me say this to our young people. You know, you're, you're middle school, you're high school. Let me say this to you in particular. Man, it's never been harder to confess Christ as it is today. It, to hold on, hold fast to, to that confession, it's going to cost you. You know that already. I don't need, you know that already. You know, uh, it, it's, you know, you already look like you have a third eye. You know, like you feel that internally. And then when you let people know, it's hard, isn't it, like that? And let me, and not just for you kids, it's for all of us. I mean, like, it, it, as soon as you say, especially in a city culture like ours, that you are a Christian, you might as well say, I'm a bigot. I'm a homophobe, transphobe, all the other language that's you. It, it's hard confessing in an orthodox manner. It is hard to confess him because people already assume they know everything they need to know about you. And it's a caricature quite often, but the reality is it's who you have been identified to be. And if we're brutally honest, right, it's shame. It's the power of shame. Listen, shame is a power over our lives. And when you fear a rebuke from your culture, let me tell you, it's really hard to profess him openly. Because we fear losing a reputation. The reputation that we have worked so hard to, to create here in our neighborhoods and in our city. I want to just suggest that 
that to us. And if we're brutally, brutally honest, we might even say this to Jesus. Jesus, sometimes you embarrass us. Sometimes you embarrass me. Sort of like when you go to that party, right, and, and you want to kind of hang out with the cool kids and there's that other kid, right? just doesn't quite fit in that you know, and you're, you're like, kind of keep your distance right now because I'm trying to make a reputation here. Right? Sometimes Jesus feels that way. But Jesus was not the cool kid at the party. I think you probably already know that by now, based on the first eight chapters. Like, he's a little bit bedraggled. In fact, he's, he's really kind of seems crazy to us at times. It's hard to identify sometimes with him if there's a reputation that you want more than anything else. And so part of what, what I, I think there's a fear here, and I wondered about that for the disciples, especially as they get closer to the cross, it's very clear the fear. But there's a second component of the fear, that if that doesn't first connect with you, the second one certainly will. And that's we, we fear losing our lives. You say, we mean losing our lives. I don't mean physically losing our lives. Thank God we don't live in a culture like that. But they do in North Korea. They do in China. They do in what's called the 1040 window in closed countries. They do in places like India, where I would do a teaching mission every year. I would hang out with these pastors that literally were putting their lives on the line every day to follow Jesus. So let's be grateful that that's not our world. But there is another whole life that we want to hold on to. And that's really this paradox here in the second part. The life that we go after, Jesus says, we're not going to get. This is the month of commencement speeches, and so it feels appropriate. I've, in the past years, a couple of different times I've mentioned this, but it's one of my favorite quotes of all time. It's from a guy named David Foster Wallace. He was a poet and a writer, and he's since passed. But at Kenyon College years ago, as part of a commencement speech, and by the way, he's not a Christian. He was called himself broadly spiritual at best. But listen to what he said about the pursuit of life to these college graduates. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Isn't that rich? Isn't that true? The very things that we seek ultimate meaning and value in our lives can never deliver. And instead, we find ourselves chasing something that is forever in front of us. It's exhausting. And Jesus says it never works. It's part of the first part of the paradox. The life that you seek, you give everything for, you will never arrive to receive, he says. And so here, as we move on to kind of the second half of the paradox, I just want to ask you, what, what is the fear in your heart this morning? As you really kind of slowly settle into the sermon and you think about, where's my fear? Is it reputation? Is it the pursuit of a different life? Those sorts of things. But here's the good news. Right? Here's the good news. There's something that you gain when you pursue the life of Jesus, which is death. 
dying to yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, it's in this paradox here. So the first, again, the first half of the paradox is like you pursue the things, you won't get it. But remember what he says. But if you put away your life, if you take up your cross and follow me, you gain the life that you cannot lose. It's like the missionary Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who, who gives up. We cannot seek to gain that which he cannot lose. It's a paradox. It's a profound paradox. Well, what is the offer here? I want to say two things. Number one, there's an offer for you to live a life of integration. What Jesus is offering is a life of integration. I love that word. The idea is that it brings in the whole different parts of the self into one whole that is aligned with his design. Let me, maybe by, by way of example, maybe help you out with this. Imagine that you have to sell a house. Imagine in the sell of the house there's something that, that necessarily no one would know about in the sell of the house that if it were to be known, it could affect the sale of the house. Maybe it'll still sell, but for less money, or maybe it won't sell at all. Now, what do you do? You disclose this issue, right? Well, it's an ethical dilemma, isn't it? But so what happens? What happens if you choose, right? If you choose to say, well, I'm going to take a greater profit, I know, by not disclosing. I'll sell the home. What do you get? Well, you get a greater profit, financially speaking, right? But what do you lose in the process? Your integrity. There's a disintegration. The word integration, integer, whole number, wholeness, integrity, you see. You lose something about what it means to be truly human as you've been designed. That's something that's lost. Why? You said there's a, there's a price tag on my integrity. It's this much money. And so you lose something of yourself. This is what Jesus is getting at. But what's the offer? Well, what if instead you said, look, I'm, I may not sell this house. I, I may lose money. And so you make it known, you disclose the value of the home, the true value of the home. And again, maybe you lose out. But what do you gain in the process? You would say integrity. You would say it is well with my soul. There's integration in your being. And you might surprisingly find yourself feeling a level of joy. What is that about? It's about more than ethics. It's about what Rick McKinley in his book called A Kingdom Called Desire says about why Jesus came. Listen to what he says. Jesus never remodels us. He doesn't improve us. Our very natures are the issue, not the cosmetic bits of looks and behaviors and ambitions. He goes right to the core of our nature, where the dry rot has corrupted the very integrity of our lives. Jesus didn't come to remodel your life. He came to be your life. Most of us want only a simple remodel that will cover up the rotting boards. Jesus plans to crucify our corrupted humanity and replace it with his perfect humanity. This is what Jesus is saying. This is what Paul says later on in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The reality is growth always means cost. Right? If you, if you, um, you know, appropriately so, you want to uh, advance in your career, you say, well, I, I need to go back to school, graduate school. Some of you literally recently have told me that. I, got, I need to go back. I need a different certification. I need a new degree. Right? It's costly. You're just like, yeah, it is. You should see the debt I've now accrued in graduate school to get here. But what, what, what does it gain you? Right? You're saying, man, I, I'm now more aligned with who I am. Or maybe it's a vacation. You're saying, man, I, I finally am able to rest, but there's a cost. It, it wasn't free. You had to, you had to go and, 
and, and count the cost. Even if you do like one of those, those uh, you know, time vacations, you know, where you have to go in and listen to a speech, you're saying, that was free. Not really. It costs you your time and it costs you your, your integrity probably too. Uh, that's a whole other story. It happened to me once. I'm not going to go there right now. <laughs> I was like, what I would do, what are your poor in your graduate school, the things you'll do uh, just to get in a hotel room. Um, I digress here. <laughs> Where is Jesus going with this? He's saying, look, if you want to grow in your life, I said this a few weeks ago, if you want to grow, it's not where you're comfortable. It's in a place of discomfort. And Jesus is saying, pick up the cross and follow me. and You'll find life that this world can never provide for you. And so, what do we do with this in closing? How do we get this life that he's talking about? Here's where I think it follows. It's actually in the bookends. It's, so, it's fascinating. Verses 31 and 38. I, when, you, when you actually separate them, isolate them out, and then bring them together, I want you to see something. Verse 31, go back and it says this. And it began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. What is this? This is the end of the gospel, of course. This is what really happened. We call it atonement in theological terms. It means to make a sacrifice for sin. And so what is Jesus saying? He's just saying this is what's going to happen, right? But along the way, how does it happen? Well, verse 38, it says this again. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now on the surface of that, what it's saying is, man, if you don't want anything to do with me, I won't have anything to do with you. Thy will be done. But what does it also say there? Shame. And here's the good news. We have said, Jesus, I don't want anything to do with you. But what does he do? He covers our shame. He covers our shame. And in the process of covering our shame has made himself known who he truly is. And we say, my Lord and my God, you are the Christ and I will follow you. How is that possible? Not because we've read self-help books. Not because we screwed up enough courage to follow Jesus. Because he himself had to reveal himself to us. And he had to take our shame upon himself. And how do we trust that? It's what the Old Testament theologian the, uh, excuse me, Edward Schweitzer said, God is, in there for, there, excuse me, God is there in precisely God in that he can do what humanity cannot do. God can allow himself to be rejected, to be made low and small without hereby being driven into an inferiority complex. Whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man understands God. It is therefore and not in heavenly splendor that one sees the heart of God. Let me read that last part again. Whoever understands the suffering of the Son of Man understands God. How can you understand what Jesus has done for you? By entering into his suffering, don't you say? How do we know that we can trust him? Because he's never asked anything of us as his followers that he himself did not do for us and then some. He asked us simply to make our time and our talents and our treasures just to have our hands open saying, Jesus, do with him whatever you want to do. Take my life and let it be a consecration, Lord, unto me, as we sometimes sing in one of the hymns. But he himself gave up his life. He gave up everything so that you and I would have peace and we'd have mercy and we'd have love. Most of all, we would have a better reputation. And so we're entering to the second half of Mark's gospel here. And 
And let me, I'm just going to tell you on the front end, there's going to be some tough passages ahead of us. Some tough things that he, he tackles here. But we need to lean in here because this is what it means to be his disciples. It means to have our hands open and say, Lord, take. Take and see. My life is forfeit. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? But what does it gain men and women if their lives are forfeit to him, gaining his life and his reputation? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the promise that was fulfilled. That we don't have to wait to the new heavens and new earth to see what you have done. Jesus, that you have been true. You've been faithful. You've been merciful. You've been gracious. So would you change our hearts and make them more and more like your heart, Lord Jesus. May our lives look more like yours as the days progress. Father, as even as we look at the life of Peter and, and to come, we're going to see that up and down, up and down. And Jesus, if we're honest, that's our lives as well. We're, we're perhaps at a high here on the Sabbath, here in a place of worship. But tomorrow morning, we're going to go into our offices. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be faced with those ethical dilemmas. Tomorrow morning, we're going to be faced with the situation in our marriages and our singleness. We're going to want to run out of fear or because you feel foreign. Jesus, we thank you that you knew in advance that we would be ashamed of you. But you overcame the shame by embracing shame. So, Lord, we thank you for the blessing of knowing you. I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now we continue in worship through confession. Uh, last Friday I had the opportunity um, to consult and train in a company that has a lot of dissension, a lot of hurt going on. And in the middle of it, I started talking about repair and forgiveness. And one of the staff people began to confess. Someone else in the group began to tell them how it made them feel when they had hurt them. And I facilitated forgiveness. The room completely changed. Everyone in the room changed. A a sense of peace and for each other just dropped on the room. Friends, there is something super powerful about confession. Admitting we're blind. Admitting the places we've missed it. I want to give you an opportunity right now. Just wherever the Spirit is bringing up for you, that lack of integrity or that struggle or that hardness maybe. Where, where have you missed it? What do you need to confess? Where, where do you want to invite that freedom and power into your life as we move to the table? So take a moment, and I'll lead us in corporate confession in just a moment. Now, friends, let's pray this prayer confession together as his people. God, we confess there is often a gap between what we profess to confess and how we actually live. You are not the Messiah we were looking for, 
and the cost of following you leaves us often in fear of losing our reputation. Forgive us for our refusal to give up paltry reputation approved by this world to gain a better reputation that brings us glory, integration, and life. Jesus, thank you for bearing our shame to win us with your eternal love. Holy Spirit, we need you. Fill us with the resurrection power as we face the cost of truly confessing Jesus as Lord of our lives today. Have mercy upon us. God, we pray. I love it. Scripture says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Receive his forgiveness. Walk in his peace today. And now we go to the table. And at the table, Scott said that there's disintegration. The table is about integration. It's about bringing our fragmentation, bringing these parts of us here and saying, Jesus, make us whole. And Jesus promises, I don't know if you know this, but out of all the places, he promises in a special way to meet us at the table. That his spiritual presence will be with us here. To recognize our need, recognize our hunger, and come find it in him. And so, with eyes of faith, what we do at the table is we look back. We remember, we remember, remember him dying on the cross in our place. So that's our participation in his life, death, and resurrection here at the table. He says, do this to remember my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, and let that give you eyes for hope, the hope where he'll come back and restore all things, to give us that energy, that power now to go out and love, faith, hope, and love. Right? With those helping with communion, please come forward. And as they do, I just want to just tell you, if, if you're here this morning and you don't yet believe upon Jesus, You've not yet put your trust in him. It would be inauthentic for you to have communion with a God that's not yet your God. And so if if that's something you'd like to walk in, we want you to know that City Church is a safe place to stay in your seats and to investigate. And we'd love to even join you in that if that's something you would like. Uh, We're available for that. But if if you're here this morning and you're, you're a member of a church somewhere in good faith and you're hungry for Jesus, come, take and eat. On the night that Jesus was to be betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and he raised it in front of his disciples and he broke it. And he said, this is my body given for you. In the same way, he took the cup and he raised it in front of them. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink of it as often as you come together. And we join with the saints who throughout the ages proclaim this great mystery, which goes like this. Christ has died. Christ has risen. And Christ will come again. Brothers and sisters, when you're ready, come and, and take your meal with to try.
chest. pray. Heavenly Father, would you set apart this ordinary bread and ordinary wine and grape juice and multiply it in extraordinary ways in this body. Lord, fill us. Confront our blindness. Make us know you as a savior that's not a foreigner, but one, one who draws near, one who loves us and is committed to, to change us. Lord, may we trust you today. We pray in your name. Amen. Now we continue in worship by bringing God his tithes and our offerings. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him more and more. Jesus. 
Just righteousness, scorned by the world. 